We are walking through the book of 1 Samuel this morning. Uh, I preach at the beginning of each series, I preach what's called a book sermon. And the intent of the book sermon is to give you a broad overview of the entire book so that when we dig into the book, we don't lose the forest for the trees. We'll, we'll see broad themes, things that you wouldn't necessarily catch inherently if you're walking through the book very slowly, but when you kind of step back for a moment and look at everything that the book has to offer, we, we learn these things. Every time I start a new series, I do also provide for you an outline of the book. Those outlines are on the back table. Feel free to grab one. Uh, if you get up now and grab one, I won't be offended. Um, if you would like to uh, get one at the end of the service, by all means, feel free to do so. As a matter of fact, Caleb, would you go grab those? And then if you'd like one, just raise your hand. That way you can have one. Um, I will be walking through it in a manner of speaking this morning. But I also added a few other interesting tidbits. Um, I, I have the typical outline. And then I added a very um, simple timeline, if you will, of events based upon chapter of the lives of the three main characters in the book, Samuel, Saul, and David. And then uh, on this last page here, I give you a little bit of insight into the history of the high priesthood. We'll, we'll see, particularly in the first three or four chapters, an emphasis upon the high priesthood through the high priest Eli. And this gives you a little insight into the lineage of the high priesthood, what happened, how it happened, why it happened, and we'll give you more information about these as I preach through this series. Um, but Thank you, Caleb. But also wanted to um, just have that as a part of this outline. So I would encourage you today as we're walking through, if you want to look through this outline as well, um, kind of follow along in your Bible. We're not going to park on any particular verses. We're going to walk through the book. So you can just keep flipping with me in your Bibles if you want. The verses, of course, will be on the screen. And then this outline will give you a little bit of an uh, idea as well. The book of 1 Samuel bears the record of the events following a most difficult time for the nation of Israel, as recorded in the book of Judges. Our church studied through the book of Judges in Sunday school, uh, maybe about a year ago we, we finished that series. It may not have been even that long ago that we finished that series. I think it was actually, it would have been, it would have been just over a year ago now that we, we finished that series. And if you recall that, um, those of you that were here for that will benefit greatly from your knowledge of the book of Judges as you seek to compare and contrast what's happening in the book of 1 Samuel, the, the tenor, the, the spirit of the time, with, uh, and we'll review it just a little bit this morning. Since the days of God's deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, the nation of Israel was set up to be what we would call a theocracy. It would be a nation not ruled by a king, but ruled directly by God and by the law which God had divinely handed down to the nation of Israel. It was expected that God's people would obey God's law by receiving teaching from the priests, regularly observing God's sacrifices and feasts, constantly having the word of God before their eyes and in their ears, and as they had the law of God constantly before them, that they would follow the law of God. This was the expectation of the nation of Israel. And God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28, or one of several places where he promised, that when the people strayed from the law of God as their king, God would hand down to them consequences, divine consequences for their disobedience. God would tell them that as they obeyed his law, he would bless them. He would 
keep them healthy. He would give them wealth. He would make them comfortable in the land. His, their enemies would flee before them. But conversely, when they strayed from God and from His will, they, God would divinely curse them. He would bring about the curses of illness and of captivity and of danger, animals overtaking the land, disease. All of these would be the, the divine um, meted out consequences or judgments of God upon the nation for their sin. And through this arrangement, it was intended that God as king would rule over his people in a theocratic fashion. Like any form of government, God would curb the nation's unrighteousness and promote righteousness in the land. This is what laws are intended to do. Laws are intended to curb the natural wickedness of man's heart to bring out uh, sufficient consequences for man's sin, murder, theft, assault, that man would then think twice about doing it. And when he does do it, he would then receive consequences for his actions. It was the same thing in the nation of Israel, only the consequences were divine. Now, the book of Judges is the record of the nation's transgressions against God and His law. We might put it this way, the book of Judges is the record of Israel's divine rejection of God as king. Every time they would transgress God's word, the scriptures tell us they would end up in captivity. And we call it the cycle of apostasy. The nation would begin by serving the Lord and then they would reject the word of God and they would fall into wickedness doing that which was right in their own eyes and then God would lead them into captivity they would fall before their enemies because of their wickedness, be it the Philistines or the Ammonites or the Amalekites or whatever enemy it might have been. And then the nation would recognize their sin, cry out to God in repentance and ask for deliverance. And God would raise up a man or a woman to then judge. They were called judges to judge the people, to, to deliver them from their enemies and to bring them into a right standing with God. And the scriptures state that as long as these judges were alive, the nation of Israel, or at least that particular subset of the nation over which the judge judged, um, would do right, would obey the law of the Lord, would obey God's commands by and large, or maybe not perfectly. And then soon after whichever judge it was at the time died, it was a, a quite regular thing that Israel would then fall back into a place of, a, of apostasy and wickedness, and the cycle would just start all over again. So you, we see in Judges chapter 2, verse 14 and then verse 16, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and He delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them and He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. So this was God's design. His design was that they would obey. But what we see in Judges is the cycle of disobedience. And Judges 21-25 tells us this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And this was a scathing condemnation against Israel. It's, it's more condemnatory than it is descriptive. The reality that there was no king in Israel was not because God did not offer them a king. God offered Himself to be their king. God said, I will be your king. So the fact that there was no king in Israel was not because there was no king available. 
It's because Israel refused the conditions of the king. It's because Israel refused to allow God to be their king. Israel rejected God as their king. And literally, as they rejected God, the nation spiraled into moral anarchy. And so this paints the setting that we step into in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We are right at the tail end of this time called the time of the judges. It's been several hundred years that Israel has been under the rule of judges, that Israel has been in the land of Canaan. And we go to a place in 1 Samuel 1 that we very rarely saw in the book of Judges. And that is the tabernacle of God. The tabernacle was intended to be the very central figure or the central element of the worship system of Israel. But the only time we go there in the entire book of the Judges is when Benjamin as a nation has almost completely been destroyed for sodomy, in fact, and wickedness. And the nation, the the tribes around Benjamin had vowed to the Lord that they would not give their daughters to marry Benjamites. And so the Benjamites go to the tabernacle in Shiloh during a feast when the young ladies would go out and dance and actually steal women in order that they can have somebody to marry to perpetuate their tribe. Because every man did that which was right in their own eyes. That's the only time we see the tabernacle uh, in the entire book other than simply it being stated that the tabernacle was in Shiloh. But in 1 Samuel 1, particularly the first several chapters, the tabernacle will take center stage. Before we jump into 1 Samuel 1, a little bit about the author, the penman of the book. The book of 1 Samuel, like every other book of the Bible, is God-breathed, is inspired by God, and therefore we would say that it has been written or authored by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. However, we know that God used penmen, God used a human hand to pen His words, though, his, though the words of God were God-breathed and inspired by God. And in the case of Samuel we see likely three penmen involved. In the Hebrew text, the books of First and Second Samuel are one book. They're not actually split into two. It's one long account. I don't know if we'll preach it like that because the book of First Samuel is long, and so I don't know if we'll jump right into Second Samuel at the end of it. But the reason why they broke up First and Second Samuel is because the scroll would be big and unwieldy if they hadn't broken it up. So they broke, broke it up into two, but, but as far as actual regarding the book, it's one long book. This is not unusual for the Old Testament. First and Second Kings are the same way. First and Second Chronicles, the same way. And on top of that, even Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Old Testament, in fact, is just one book. Now, the pool of authors that wrote First and Second Samuel, we, we can draw from three different authors. First Chronicles 29.29 tells us this. Now the acts of David the king, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, and in the book of Nathan the prophet, and the book of Gad the seer. And we don't have a book called Nathan the prophet. We don't have a book called Gad the seer. So it's quite possible here that what this is actually doing is ascribing to each of these men certain parts of the writing of the history of David, which is found in First and Second Samuel primarily, and then a, a little bit into First Kings. And so it's likely then what we have here is Samuel wrote chapters 1 through 24. Chapter 25, verse 1, Samuel was dead. 
so he couldn't have written that. But chapters 1 through 24, likely Samuel wrote it, and then Nathan and Gad, who were both ministers during the days of David, likely wrote the rest of the account of David's life. And we, we draw that from 1 Chronicles 29, 29, and the rest of it, um, we just uh, have to play a little bit of, of the assumption game. But it seems likely that that was the case. So we step into 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we see that the book of 1 Samuel revolves around three central figures. Samuel, who was a judge and a prophet. Saul, who was Israel's first king. And David, who was the greatest king of Israel and the king that God would, would perform his great blessings and promises through. And the record begins in 1 Samuel 1 with the birth of Samuel. The account of Samuel's birth is one of the unique bright spots in the book. 1 Samuel is a book that has a great deal of rebellion in it, in fact. And what we see at the beginning, however, in the midst of the rebellion is this woman named Hannah. An account of faith, an account of yieldedness, an account of love. Hannah, Samuel's mother, was unable to have children. So she humbly petitions the Lord and the Lord graciously blesses her with a child. Hannah had vowed a vow and she had promised to the Lord that if you will give me a man-child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for his entire life. And she, is, she makes good on this vow. She honors the vow that she has made and she takes Samuel and instead of redeeming him, which was the right of every firstborn child, the parents would go to the tabernacle or the temple as, as the case may be and they would redeem their child from the Lord so that they could raise their child. She did not redeem him. She instead actually did lend him to the Lord for his life. And so Samuel spends his childhood serving Eli, the high priest, and his sons. And it's here that we see the first evidences of a rebellion having made it all the way up to the rank of the national leaders. Eli uh, is the high priest at this time, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas were wicked men in every respect. They abused their religious office and took advantage of the people. They scorned the sacrifice of God, and Eli, as their father and as the high priest, only gave token objections to their sin. He told them it's wrong, but he didn't discipline them. He He didn't take it into their hands to correct them. He simply said, you know you shouldn't be doing this, and then he watched as they went back and did it anyway. God has always held spiritual leaders to a higher standard than others, and this is no exception. And it's through the unfortunate circumstances of Eli and his children's rebellion that God first speaks to the young man who would soon become a prophet named Samuel. And in Samuel chapter, 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, the Scriptures tell us that the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli and at this time, it's, the scriptures say the word of the Lord was precious. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. In other words, God had not spoken to or through a man in many years. We see early in the book of Judges, visions, and the Lord speaking to men, and, and the Lord speaking through men, as we think of the prophetess Deborah and such. And yet it has been many, many years since the Lord has chosen to speak to or through any man. They've been longing for the Lord to speak, but their wickedness has precluded them. But God did speak to Samuel in the night while all were asleep and told him 
that the house of Eli and his sons would be judged for their sin, that the family of Eli would be removed forever from the privileges of the priesthood, and that as a sign that Eli and his family would be completely removed from the priesthood, Hophni and Phinehas would die that day and that they would die together on the same day. Such was the first message that God asked Samuel to bear. A message to the man who had raised him of the man's own judgment and the destruction of his children. And such would be the tenor of Samuel's entire ministry. It would be a painful ministry. It would be one where he battled against rebellion his whole life. And one in which he was not always successful at fighting the rebellion of his people, even the rebellion of his own children. But it was a ministry which he did indeed bear with faithfulness and with obedience. The judgment upon Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas did not take long to transpire. Chapter 4 describes the idolatry of the people thinking that the Ark of the Covenant was some sort of idolatrous good luck charm that would enable them to win their battles against their enemies. Little did they consider that it was only their personal sin that had separated them between God and His blessing. And so they called for the ark to come out to the battlegrounds to be their good luck charm. They ended up losing the battle. The ark was stolen. Hophni and Phinehas were killed. Eli was told what had transpired on that day. A messenger came from the battle and said, Israel has lost the battle. Eli said, what about the ark? The messenger said, your children have been killed. Eli said, what about the ark? And they said, and the ark has been taken. And Eli, when he heard that the ark had been taken, he was a man that loved the Lord for all of his failings. He was so shocked and dismayed at the ark being taken, he fell backwards out of his chair. And he was such a heavy man, the scriptures say he broke his neck and he died as well. So on that day, the ark of God was taken. Eli, the high priest, and his two children, Hophni and Phinehas, who were functioning as the priests of the day, were all killed. Time of great upheaval in the land. And now Samuel was the seer, the prophet. He would become the judge at a time of great turmoil. Well, the Philistines had taken the ark and they found no better circumstances awaiting them because they had the ark in their possession. The people placed the ark before their god that night, uh, god Dagon. He was a man with a fish head and he was their god at the time and he had his hands outstretched like this, to receive the sacrifices of the Philistines, a a god of stone, a false god. And the Scriptures tell us they woke up in the morning and that idol of Dagon was fallen down on his face before the Ark of God. The Philistines said, well, that's weird. They put it back up that day, went back to bed that night. The next morning, he had fallen on his face again, except this time his head was cut off and his hands were cut off. Philistines said, there's a problem here. I don't think we want this ark in our possession. The God of this ark is very angry with us. So they sent it to another city of uh, of the Philistines. That city subsequently was plagued for them having the ark of God. They decided they didn't want the ark of God either. They tried to pawn it off on other cities. They said, none of us want it. What should we do with this thing? And they decided the end to send the ark back from whence it came. So they get some oxen. They put the ark on a cart and they say, go. And the oxen, by the hand of the Lord, led the ark back to Israel. Well, Samuel rejoiced over the return of the ark of the Lord and took upon himself 
this mantle at this time of judging the nation of, of Israel, leading them in the way that they should go. The judge had a unique ministry. Sometimes the ministry would indeed overlap with that of the priest in giving of sacrifices and the like, and Samuel certainly had that privilege upon him. First Samuel 15 tells us that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, traveling in a circuit between Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and Ramah to judge the people of Israel, to uh, help them with their decisions, to interpret the law of God, and then to bring about an understanding of God's expectations. But for all the faithfulness of Samuel, all the faithfulness that he had exhibited before the Lord, what he had done as well is failed as a father of his children. Similar to the circumstances of Eli, who did indeed love the Lord, though his children were profane and wicked, Samuel's children were also wicked. Their corruption brought about a discontentment among the people. They didn't want Samuel's children ruling over them as judges because of their children, his children's sin. But they didn't want God ruling over them as king either through his law. So what did they do? Well, they said, let's be like other nations. Samuel, give us a king. Give us a human king. They demanded a king of Samuel. And the scriptures tell us that this greatly displeased Samuel because he knew what it meant. He knew that they were asking for a king not because they felt they needed one, but because they didn't want God to be their king. The people had no interest in God as their leader. They were rejecting the Lord. And that's what 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 and 7 tell us. Verse 5, And they said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Verse 7 says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Here we see what we talked about this morning in Sunday school, the permissive will of God. God allowing them to do something though it would not be his ideal. So against God's perfect will, and according to God's permissive will, God gave the people what they desired, a king, and all of the problems that a monarchy would bring. We've seen a lot of rebellion so far. The rebellion of Hophni and Phinehas, the rebellion of Samuel's sons, the rebellion of Israel against God, with the, the slightest glimmers being found in Hannah, the righteous woman, Samuel, the godly judge. And we're introduced in chapter 9 to the man who would become Israel's first king. We transition now from a focus on Samuel and his ministry to a focus on Saul as the first king in Israel here in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, verse 2 of 1 Samuel, we see the description of this man Saul. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and goodly, and there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. For his shoulders and upward, for from his shoulders and upward, excuse me, he was higher than any of the people. A tall, rugged, handsome, strong, capable man, Saul was. But he was a somewhat reluctant leader. In chapter 10, we see the record of Saul being anointed king. He saw himself as a nobody of the tribe of Benjamin, unworthy of the responsibility, and somewhat un, um, 
unwilling in some ways to take it upon himself, but soon the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and enable him to do what he thought he could not, and things start out pretty well. The account is found in 1 Samuel 11, verse 6. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard those tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Verse 15 says this, And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What had happened here is Saul had heard about the danger of his brethren. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. He led his brethren into battle. They defeated their enemies and everyone rejoiced that they had a king who could lead them out to battle against their enemies and defeat their foes. And Saul is convinced, hey, I can do this. And the people are convinced, hey, he can do this. And they go to renew the kingdom in Gilgal, a place of extreme covenantal importance for Israel. We'll talk about that when we get there. They go to Gilgal. They renew the kingdom. Saul rejoices. The people rejoice. Everything's hunky-dory. But this is unfortunately... Just a few days into Saul's king uh, uh, rule, the high point of his reign. From here, it's all downhill, unfortunately. First Samuel chapter 12 is a chapter of rebuke toward the people. Though all has been good, though the people are happy now they have a king, Samuel does remind them that the fact that they have a king is, is in rebellion against God. Verses 23 through 25, Samuel says, Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things He hath done for you. But if you shall do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both ye and your king. So Samuel says, you've done wrong, but here's the deal. God is willing to forgive. God is willing to, to work through you in the midst of your rebellion if you'll just start doing what's right. You do right, your king does right, and God will still bless you though you've done something that he did not desire you to do. It was only two years later in Saul's reign in chapter 13 that Saul revealed his heart of rebellion toward God. Saul was at the edge of another battle. It was against the Philistines and he was anxiously awaiting for Samuel to come and to offer a sacrifice for the blessing of the Lord upon the battle. So the people, Israel is scattered. The battle could begin at any moment. And Saul is wringing his hands, looking at his sundial, wondering when exactly God is going to, uh, Samuel is going to come and give this sacrifice so that the blessing of the Lord would be upon the battle. Samuel was, you can, you can feel the idolatrous heart there. He was afraid. He, he was afraid that if this particular little nuance of the religious system wasn't done, then God's blessing wouldn't be there. Not really thinking that God's blessing is not as much upon what is done as the heart with which it is done. And that's what Samuel will eventually rebuke Saul for. Of course, we'll talk about that when we get there. So Saul is wringing his hands. Samuel is late. And Saul says, I can't wait any longer. This has got to be done. So he offers a sacrifice upon the altar. Something that is expressly forbidden in the law of God that, that a king of Israel rather than a priest of Israel would sacrifice upon the altar. He usurped the office of the priest. It was unlawful for him to do so. It was in an extreme heart of rebellion and he did it before the entire nation of Israel. Samuel soon arrives. He rebukes Saul for his wickedness and he tells Saul that his sin has disqualified 
his posterity, his seed, his children from continuing to rule the nation. Saul is, Saul is not rejected as king, but his posterity is rejected as king on this date. Though it would be another 38 years before Saul is killed, it would be, another, it would be many more years before Saul himself is rejected as king, yet this is where Saul's lineage is rejected as the lineage through which God would work. Chapter 14 is a breath of fresh air. A glimmer of hope in the midst of rebellion that has characterized the leaders of Israel. Like in the days of Hannah when she yielded herself to the Lord in faith. Like in the days of Samuel when he obeyed the voice of the Lord. Enter Saul's firstborn son, Jonathan. This battle has already not been looking very good for Israel. Uh, the, the nation is scattered. They have very few weapons among them. The blacksmiths have been taken by the Philistines. There's not a whole lot of hope here. Saul has disobeyed the Lord in giving the sacrifice early. The blessing of the Lord is not upon the battle. And Jonathan says, what if I just trusted the Lord? What if I just stepped out in faith and trusted the Lord? And he does so. He trusts the Lord. He sought God's will above his own. When all seems lost for the weak and scattered nation of Israel, Jonathan steps out in faith and he secures a great victory over the Philistines. This rallies the hopes of Israel. This unites the nation again. And this account reminds us that even in times of moral apostasy, God is on his throne and there are indeed yet still men that serve him. And so Jonathan becomes that glimmer of hope, that breath of fresh air in the midst of rebellion, but then we fall very quickly back into the rebellion again. At some point in, our, in the future, Saul is asked of the Lord to fight again. Saul is the Lord's anointed. He's the one that God has chosen to lead this nation. And so God has a task for Saul to accomplish. Chapter 15, God commands Saul to fight against Amalek and the Amalekites, utterly destroying everything in the nation, man, woman, child, even animals. Destroy everything, God says. And he sends Saul. He says, you have my blessing. You will be victorious. Go and do what I said. Well, Saul is given the victory as God tells us he would. But he doesn't obey the command of God. He spares the best of the animals, the best of the oxen, the best of the sheep, and he spares the king. The Lord, of course, sees this as rebellion. Sends Samuel to confront Saul's disobedience. Samuel questions Saul on his rebellion and Saul does not repent. Saul does not humble himself. He defies God. He defies Samuel. He says, no, this was not rebellion. I did do as the Lord said, even though the prophet of God is clearly saying, no, you didn't do what God said. And the evidence is right before them. Saul shows his defiance and his wickedness. And the scriptures tell us that on that day, Saul is rejected as king himself and that there is a new king that will transition into leadership of Israel because of Saul's rebellion. This man Saul is supposed to be the king. He's supposed to lead the people into obedience and his rebellion will not be tolerated. And it's within this context that we find one of the great themes of the book and a great theme that spans the breadth of Scripture found in verses 22 and 23. Behold, Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as the iniquity of idolatry. Last week we talked about the sin of witchcraft, how deep of a sin it is before God. He calls it an abomination. He uses the same words to describe witchcraft as he uses to describe sodomy. And yet here, we see rebellion placed on the same plane as witchcraft. Rebellion is indeed odious, abhorrent to the Lord. When a man, when a people group outright reject the revealed Word of God, God rejects them as well. We'll come back to this truth at the end. It's after this rejection that we're introduced to another biblical breath of fresh air. A young man, son of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, living in a place called Bethlehem, named David. David was the youngest of eight sons of Jesse, a shepherd, a strong man, a handsome man, and a young man who loved the Lord. Samuel anoints David to be king, and the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul and rests upon David. Now, this has nothing to do with salvation. We'll talk about that when we get there. And everything to do with God's empowerment for ministry. And this event sets up the conflict that will really encapsulate the rest of 1 Samuel. A conflict between Saul in his jealousy and David because he is to be the next king. And we transition here our focus, just as we transitioned in chapter 9, our focus from Samuel to Saul. We transition here in our focus in chapter 16 from Saul to David. Now in chapter 17, the nations of Israel and the Philistines are at war again. This time, as they encamp against one another, they're on two hills with a valley in between. And there's a bit of a stalemate right now as each camp has their hill. And I don't know, maybe they don't want to fight, whatever it might be. There's a stalemate. But every day, the Philistines champion, a man named Goliath, a giant, one of several giants in the land at this time, stepped out into that valley, defied the God of Israel, defied the nation of Israel, and defied them to send out a man who could fight with him one-on-one. And he said, here's how we'll do it. This man and I will fight one-on-one and whoever wins, that'll be the battle. And the, the other nation will, will submit to that victory. If I win, then Israel, you become our servants. If Israel's man wins, then, then we as the Philistines will become your servants. And so every day he came out and he defied Israel in these regards. Well, David is not there, but his father, Jesse, sends him to bring some food to his brothers. And he hears the defiant cry of Goliath one day, and he is indignant for the reputation of the Lord. And he offers to fight Goliath. David hears Goliath's defiance, and like Jonathan, and like Samuel, and like Hannah, He believed that God's word was of more value and of more importance than what he saw with his eyes, what he knew to be true physically. Well, David would indeed defeat Goliath. Most of you know the story. We'll get there. He defeats Goliath, becomes Israel's champion. But in becoming Israel's champion, he also secures the jealousy of King Saul, who knows that God has rejected him as king and begins to see David as his greatest threat. This jealousy would never subside. 
In chapter 18, David is invited, as one might expect, into the court of Saul. Saul, of course, always wanted to surround himself with the greatest in Israel, the greatest warriors, the greatest musicians, and David was a good musician and a good warrior. And so he would, he would end up in Saul's court in perpetuity. However, David would soon find himself unwelcome there. He was commanded to be in the court of the king, but the king would try to kill him on several occasions. In chapter 18, verse 10, Saul attempted to kill David, thrust him through with a javelin. In chapter 18, verses 17 through 27, Saul attempts to get David killed by sending him on an errand in order to secure the affection of one of Saul's um, daughters to be his wife, hoping that David would be killed by his enemies. In chapter 19, verses 12 through 17, Saul again attempts to kill David by thrusting him through with a javelin, and David finally gets the hint, it's time to run. If I hang around here, this man is going to kill me. So David flees for his life. In chapters 19 through 26, we see the record of David's journey to elude the wrath of Saul. Many of the Psalms are written during this time. We read one of them this morning, in fact, that was written in David's concern, fear, sorrow over the enemies that are attacking him without cause. So he flees to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech supplies his needs. Then he goes to Achish, the king of Gath and Philistia. That doesn't work out well. So he, he runs to Mizpah and Moab. Then he runs to the forest of Hereth, then to Ziph, which is when he wrote Psalm 54. Then he runs to Engedi. While he's in Engedi, he spares Saul's life when he had a chance to kill Saul because he would not touch, he would not kill the Lord's anointed all the while, David is attempting to convince Saul that David is no threat to him, that David loves him, that David would never harm him, that David was no threat to his reign. We skip forward to chapter 25, and we see the record of Samuel's death, a loss for the nation. David's journey takes him to the house of a wicked man named Nabal. In the midst of David's conflict with this wicked man, shines another beacon of virtue. Within the midst of the darkness of wickedness and rebellion, we see virtue in the person of Abigail, Nabal's wife. Nabal's actions stirred David up to destroy him, but Abigail, with wisdom and humility and virtue, pacifies the anger of David and brings peace between the households. Nabal would soon die, and David would return to take Abigail as one of his wives. Chapters 27 through 31 record David among the Philistines. It's, a, it's probably the darkest time in David's life. He is living among his enemies. He is having to lie to convince his enemies that they're his friends. He's trying to convince the Philistines that he's no threat to them, while at the same time not being a threat to Israel. He's given a city called Ziklag. He's out destroying the Ammonites and the Moabites and various other nations and then lying and telling the kings of the Philistines that he's destroying Israel. And then something happens. Chapters 30 and 31, the Philistines go to war against Israel again and Achish, the king of Gath, says, I want David to fight with us against Israel. Achish at this point was completely convinced that David was loyal to them and hated Israel and David can't do anything but say, okay, I'll go with you. David was in quite a bind here until the other kings of the Philistines heard 
that David was going to join the battle and they would not let David take part. They said, what if he turns against us? So David dodges a bullet there and doesn't have to fight against Israel. Ends up going back to his town, finding it ransacked, the women taken. They go on a campaign to restore their families. They do so. And the book ends in chapter 31 with a record of this battle between Israel and the Philistines. In this battle, Jonathan, the godly son of Saul, Abinadab and Malkishua, other of Saul's sons, are slain. And Saul himself is killed as well. The very end of the chapter is some men of God going and retrieving the body of Saul which had been hung on a wall as a mark of defeat of the Philistines' enemies. And the end of 1 Samuel leaves us in a pretty tough place. Kind of leaves us in as tough of a place as the beginning of the book. Israel is scattered. Their leader is dead. The posterity to receive the throne is gone as Saul's children have been killed. There's a few left. The people are, are in, a, in a bad way. They've rebelled against the Lord. And David right now is in the land of the Philistines anointed to be king, but living among God's enemies. And yet through it all, a God, the God of all flesh is still on the throne. And it picks up in 2 Samuel as we see David begin to take his rightful place, anointed place as king. So we've walked through the book. That's what we're going to be looking at over the next several months. Understanding what God has for us to learn from these examples of these men and women, some of them godly, some of them rebellious. There will be much that we'll learn. But one of the advantages of the entire overview of the book is that we can easily pick out overriding themes. And though there are perhaps others that we won't touch on today, I'd like us to close by considering three important themes that overshadow the book of 1 Samuel. And the three themes are these. Number one, spiritual leaders bear the responsibility of leading others unto God. Number two, God will not use for his purposes those who reject his word. And number three, God will always be found of those willing to act in faith above what they perceive with their senses. Let's talk about these for just a few moments. Number one, spiritual leaders bear the responsibility of leading others unto God. There are several spiritual leaders that we see throughout this book. Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel and his sons, their names are Joel and Abiah. Saul, to a lesser degree, his sons. David never really takes the lead over much other than his 400 to 600 men at any given time. But David's the leader as well. Now, Eli and Samuel did what was right before the Lord. Unfortunately, as leaders in their homes, they didn't do a very good job. And it's interesting as we see the way they led their failure to lead their children unto God led to their children failing to lead the nation unto God. They may have done a great job as leaders in their own right, 
but their children's wickedness and rebellion not only brought about sin in the family, but then as their children became the leaders of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas in particular, they brought the rest of the nation along with them into sin. And so we see a warning, we see an example that the failure of Eli and of Samuel to minister to the immediate need of their children led to the failure of the next generation of spiritual leaders. Often we think of spiritual leaders as pastors, missionaries, evangelists, but take note, parents, you are a spiritual leader as well. Parents, you have the responsibility to lead your children unto God, regardless of whether or not you have a good church, regardless of the access that you have to other ministries, you have the Word of God and you have a responsibility to train up your children to know that God. And not only will it matter in their lives, but the way you lead your children will affect the next generation of the church. The young people in this room today, the young men and the young women in this room today are the next generation of the church. If you do your best to serve the Lord for your life but fail to invest in the lives of your children, that will rub off on the next generation of the church. We also see in this book the leadership of Saul. We would need to go to 2 Samuel to see the dramatic contrast between Saul's leadership as king in Israel and David's leadership as king in Israel. But within the context of this book, we do see a man who began right because he began humble and submitted to the Spirit of the Lord, but became proud and self-sufficient and ended up in a place of rebellion. Whereas Saul began by doing things God's way, God's way as he became convinced of his own entitlement to the throne and his own ability to do what a king needed to do, he began to ignore God's way and began to do things this way. And this led to his ruin. As spiritual leaders, whether that's myself as a pastor or uh, you as a parent or as a leader in the church, perhaps the treasurer, secretary, one day we'll have deacons, uh, leaders in the church in that regard as well. We must remember that the only way to spiritual success is God's way. It's the only way. You can't take it upon yourself to do things your way and expect to find spiritual success. You may be convinced that you will, but you won't because it's God's way that matters. The only way as spiritual leaders in whatever capacity or as future spiritual leaders in whatever capacity, future parents, future pastors, future deacons, future elders, the only way we will find success is when we stop thinking that we know what is best and begin believing that God knows what is best and resting in what God has told us to do. Point two. God will not use for His purposes those who reject His Word. Eli was the high priest, a man selected by God as, a, as the lineage of Aaron, the high priest, to teach and to represent God's will to the nation of Israel. Saul was the king, a man anointed by God to lead the nation of Israel into God's will. The only problem was that each of these men had rejected what God had taught them, what God had told them to do. As a consequence of Eli's rejection of God's revealed word, 
his family was thrust from the priesthood. As a consequence of Saul's rejection of God's revealed word, his family was thrust from the monarchy. And take note, Eli and Saul had both still recognized God to be their authority. They never got to the point where they said, well, God is not my authority. The very day that Samuel, Saul was thrown from, the, from the, the monarchy, the very day that God rejected him to be king, was a day where he came to the Saul, or Samuel and he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the will of the Lord. And Samuel said, No, you didn't. What's that bleeding of sheep I hear? What's the lowing of oxen? That is the sound of rebellion against God. And Saul said, No, 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 no. I've, I've obeyed God. God is my king. He said it with his mouth. But he didn't believe it with his heart. And he didn't live it with his actions. Ladies and gentlemen, modern Christianity is in the same place as well. It's not that our churches and that our Christian schools and that our Christian seminaries don't admit that Jesus is God or admit that God is our authority. The problem is, though we're saying it with our mouths, we're not believing it with our hearts or living it with our hands. We've abused God's grace to go after the sins of the world while professing a love and a devotion to God. We've professed this love and this devotion to God on the one hand while living for ourselves and for this world on the other hand and they just don't mix. The book of James calls it being double-minded. The book of Samuel calls it rebellion. And by God's grace, we at Legacy Baptist Church will not be so. By God's grace, we will humbly submit ourselves to the teachings of God's Word, doing it God's way, rather than making excuses for why we can ignore God's Word, rather than writing off partial obedience as complete obedience. By God's grace, we will be men and women of integrity and of obedience and of righteousness, men and women that God can use, not because we are something special, not because we're something more capable, not because we're something more godly, but because we have willingly yielded ourselves to the Spirit of God and purposefully obeyed the Word of God. Because the Scriptures bear out that those who reject the revealed will of God will find themselves rejected as tools to be used. By God. God's not going to use a tool that's not interested in obeying Him. God uses those who submit themselves to Him. Third and finally this morning, God will always be found of those willing to act in faith above that which they perceive with their, with their senses. Hannah, Samuel, Jonathan, Abigail, David, Men and women who unite to form a unified picture of the reward upon those who are willing to set aside what they see with their eyes in order to obey what they know God wants in faith. Hannah overcame a barren womb by believing God in faith. Samuel became a great prophet because he was willing to listen to the word of the Lord. Jonathan single-handedly delivered Israel from the Philistines because he trusted that God would do what God said He would do. Abigail saved her household by acting in a manner consistent with the virtues and teachings of God. David slew a giant, protected the Lord's anointed, endured the fear and temptation and suffering of fleeing from an entire army with patience, wrote the Psalms in the midst of it, all because he believed God in faith. And each man and woman in turn was found of the God that they sought.
so too God will be found of you if you will trust Him in faith. The thread that unites all of these characters was that they sought first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things were added unto them. All of the physical blessings of this earth were added unto those who made God and His word and His will the priority. See, every day you and I make decisions. Every day you and I make decisions of what we're going to do, how we're going to support our family, where we're going to go, what we're going to say, um, where we're going to go to church. And each of these decisions we can do one of two ways. We can trust the Lord or we can trust ourselves. We can do what seems the most promising from a material perspective or, what, or we can do what is most right by a biblical perspective. Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? Are we ensuring that the, the elements of our faith and our spiritual health are in line, trusting then that as we seek the Lord, as we read our, the Word of God, as we pray, as we assemble among believers of like faith and practice, as we pursue the will of God, then all of these other things, all of these material things will be added unto us, that God can bless us above what we would even perceive if we will but follow Him. The Scriptures show us through all of these men and women that the blessing of God rests upon those who will trust Him and put His priorities above what they would perceive with their eyes, above what they would know even with their minds. If we will but rest in the will of God, we will find that the degree to which we obey the revealed Word of God and step out in faith, believing is the degree to which God will be able to show Himself strong in our lives. Three points. Just broad points in recognition of the theme found throughout 1 Samuel. It presents for us the legacy of two choices. To please God above ourselves, or to please ourselves above God. We each make this choice every day. All day. Am I going to read my Bible today? Am I going to please God or myself? Am I going to trust that God can provide for me the things that I need? Trust God or myself? Am I going to do what's right even when everyone I know is doing wrong? Trust God. Trust myself. Am I going to obey my parents? Trust God. Trust myself. Am I going to be honest at work? Trust God. Trust myself. And the legacy of 1 Samuel teaches us that if we will but choose to please God above ourselves, what we will find is spiritual joy, spiritual provision, and spiritual blessing above all of the temporary satisfaction of pursuing our own pleasures. Let's close in prayer.